there's an article <clears throat> that I recently published in White Hot Magazine, and it's by Eric LaProd, and it's called A Moment with Emily Dickinson's Clock. The photo shows an antique clock, and apparently Emily Dickinson kept a clock by her bed. So I'm just going to read some of the article. And you can also visit the article online. But here it is by Eric LaProd, March 2023, in White Hot Magazine. Whitehotmagazine.com Emily Dickinson kept a clock by her bed. It sat on her armoire. The clock was an automaton, which comes from the Latin word automatos, a self-moving machine, one that acts by itself. Originally from the Greek word automatos, meaning self-moving, such clocks were popular novelties in the 18th and 19th centuries. Emily's clock was made in France circa 1830. It comes under a catalog of clocks known as rocking ship clocks. The wooden base of the clock also contains a music box, and when wound up, it played a C melody. Unfortunately, the key to the music box has been lost. Whether the clock was given to Emily by a family friend or relative is not known. After Dickinson died, the clock went to her sister. Thereafter, it was passed on to a grandniece who eventually sold it to two artists along with Dickinson's personal bookcase. I encountered both the bookcase and the clock when I visited these artists, friends of mine, at their home in Milton, Pennsylvania. The bookcase is located in a bedroom on the first floor of the house. It's a massive piece of furniture measuring approximately 16 feet high and 13 feet wide. The clock sits on a table in another part of the house. Since I was staying with friends for several days, I had ample opportunity to examine Dickinson's clock, which I found quite fascinating. Its dimensions are impressive, measuring 23 inches high and 16 inches wide at the base. It is constructed of cast brass, veneered wood, tin, cloth, and painted metal. The upper part of the clock is elaborately crafted and expertly cast in rich golden-colored brass. At the apex sits a winged putto-like figure, presumably one of Neptune's puti, who often attend him in classical sculptures from the Renaissance and Baroque periods, especially on fountains. This putto is seated on a shell-like throne, clad only in a cloth draped across his lap. His feet are bare, he holds a trident in his left hand, and points downward with the index finger of his right hand, glancing to the right as though looking towards someone, directing them, or us, to look at the clock's face for the time. Below the figures of the pato is the clock's face, also in brass. It is ornate, surrounded by a border of what look like traditional ancanthus leaves and floral elements, but which also suggest waves. The face itself is only 4.25 inches in diameter and has two keyholes where one would wind up the clock mechanism.
At the base of the clock's face is a large decorative scallop shell. Underneath the clock's face is a large opening embraced on either side by supporting feet in metalwork, continuing florid and canthus-style border of the upper area. These encanthus leaves, however, are cleverly formed into the shape of two dolphins, one on either side, tails up and noses down. Within the opening between them is the mechanical automaton portion of the clock. Once there was a convex glass covering this area, but it has been lost. Within this space, I can see a small wooden ship with two masts set in a C tableau. The wooden base of the clock upon which the upper bronze portion rests and which functions as the pedestal for the ship tableau is adorned with an inlaid garland of flowers surrounding an image of a ship with billowing sails. The ship itself is three inches long, its tiny faux seal rising up above fabric waves, indicating a rough voyage. Behind the ship is a blue-green seascape painted on tin, consisting of a scene of two cliffs bracketing a bay. Two houses perch on the cliff, beyond which is an open view of the sea with a faint view of sailing ships in the distance. This is a very calm sea, in contrast to the sea the mechanical ship sailed on when in motion. This motion was supplied by a wind-up mechanism in the clock's base, which worked independently of the clock mechanism. The key for winding this mechanism seems to have been lost, so the question of when this ship last sailed seems unanswerable. It has been frozen in time. The small tin sails filled with wind as the ship breasts the waves, helped by protruding metal rod pushing the ship upwards. Anyways, I I didn't read that last part perfectly, but... Here's the next part. The sea beneath the ship is made of a dark and very soiled piece of fabric, possibly sheeting or cheesecloth, measuring about 2.25 inches wide by 6 inches long, supported by two metal brackets. It was presumably once painted a sea green or blue, but the paint has turned a filthy gray with the center fallen in and hanging down the middle. The cloth, probably over a hundred years old and very fragile, hangs over brackets at the edges. I carefully lift this cloth at the edge, enabling me to peer down into the great box. Next, I stick my finger into this box and feel the small cogs and flywheels of the mechanism which control the ship. I find a cog wheel in the middle of the box and begin to turn it clockwise. Thus, with my middle finger, I notate the flywheel a full 360 degrees, and the ship begins to roll like a ship in a storm. That was actually rotate, not notate. As I continue to move the flywheel, the ship moves first upwards, then downwards, behind the cloth waves. Then it rolls to its leeward side, as though about to capsize. But with another half turn, the forward part of the ship rises again out of the waves into its original position, as I had found it. I take my finger out of the gearbox and put back the dirty piece of cloth as I close, as as close as possible to its original position, 
covering the gears. Then I lift the upper part of the clock and place it back into its place on the wooden base. My sea voyage is over. Did Emily Dickinson ever wind up this clock? I've been told that it sat on the dresser in her bedroom and was one of the first things she saw when she woke up in the morning. Miss Dickinson's poetry contains a number of images of the sea, although it is known that she never actually spent time on the ocean. Perhaps her clock with its mechanical sailing ship was all she needed to stimulate her nautical imagination. Two of Dickinson's poems with sea references to follow. The first follows a conventional form and expresses a fairly conventional idea. In the second, however, Dickinson's, Dickinson allows herself to explore uncharted seas, so to speak, in both form and imagery. The following is from the complete poems of Emily Dickinson, 1924. CXLI On this wondrous sea, sailing silently, knowest thou the shore, ho, plot, ho, where no breakers roar, where the storm is o'er. In the silent west, many sails at rest, their anchors fast. Thither I plot thee, land, ho, eternity, ashore at last. I started early, took my dog. I started early, took my dog, and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me, and frigates in the upper floor extended hempian hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too and made as he would eat me up as holy as dew upon a dandelion's sleeve and then I started too and he followed close behind I felt his silver heel upon my ankle then my shoes would overflow with pearl till we met the solid town no one he seemed to know and bowing with a mighty look at me the sea withdrew notes uh the complete poems of emily dickinson little brown and company boston massachusetts 1924 from part four time and eternity two is ibid poem from part two nature and the author says, thanks to Sandra Cranswick for her editorial assistant. Eric Laprade has a BA and MA from City College. Some of his interviews and articles have appeared in Art in America, The Brooklyn Rail, Art Critical, and News Whistle. His book, Breaking Through Richard Bellamy and the Green Gallery, 1960 to 1965, was published in 2010. Mid-March Arts Press. His forthcoming book, Weather, is published by Last Word Books, Olympia, Washington, 2020. And uh, apologies to Eric Laprade, I made a few mistakes while I was reading, but this is a somewhat informal podcast, so um, I'm happy to connect with the writer. And uh, I would suggest that you go to whitehotmagazine.com and read the article that um, read this actual article that I published of Eric's uh, piece about Emily Dickinson's clock. Noah Becker signing out, 2023.
Thank mm-hmm. you.